0: Remaining standing for Psalm 11, the reading of God's holy and precious and infallible Word. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord... Is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. What do we know about God's word? The press withers and the fire falls. But the word of our for let us bow in prayer. Our heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh, Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Today is 9-11. And 9-11 perks our memory. It was an awful thing. I remember I was in Atlanta in, in the Northeast in a restaurant with a a, a student. Pre, pre, potential student to our seminary uh, when the television above us showed a burning tower. And then as we watched, there was an airplane that flew into the second tower, and I said to the student, this was not by accident. We all remember that. You were somewhere, I know that you can think in your own mind as it precisely where you were, it was a traumatic, very sad, difficult event in the life of our nation. And since 9-11, it has been my observation that things have gotten worse. We're not living in a, as safe a world as we used to live. I think we can all agree that we are living in difficult Times Psalm 11 uh, is a psalm of David, where he was living in a difficult time in his life, a most difficult time. His government was being torn asunder. Now we realize that his government was a pretty, rather large government. He reigned over the land totally on the east of the Mediterranean Sea, what today is Israel, the West Bank, Lebanon, uh, Syria, Jordan, parts of Arabia. They had what he did not directly reign over. Uh, he received taxes from <laughs> and tribute from the nations surrounding them, and they were at peace. But his government was being run asunder. From within, His own son Absalom was rebelling against him. Not only was his government at stake, but also his own life, the life of his family, the lives of all those around him, the lives of all those apart, a part of this government were all at risk. This psalm was written when David's world was turned upside down. Down. However, scholars classify it not as a psalm of lament, but as a psalm of praise. It's filled with hope in God. It is a testimony to the hope that David had in his God. You know, the Bible is indeed a book of hope, even in the midst of the diff- most difficult and horrible times. And we need that hope. We live upon that hope. There is a verse in Romans 8 that says that we hope for that which we hope for. And he uses the word hope in the same way that we would use the word faith or trust in God. Our hope is in him, and he is sure. And before we get going on, on this sermon, I want you to know that while some of the things that I'm going to be saying sound severe, it, it doesn't raise, rise to the level of the hope and the foundation that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ and in our God the Father, our God the Spirit. It does not arise uh, rise to that. We look at verse 1. David begins his psalm in the midst of his situation by professing his faith in the Lord by saying, In the Lord I take refuge. A refuge is a place of escape. It's a shelter for protection. And in the face of of immediate peril, he says, in the Lord, I take refuge. David then asks, how can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow?" They make ready the arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. His counselors were giving him this advice. Uh, they were also including this rationale with it. The advice is flee like a bird to the mountain. You can, a bird being, maybe you're shooting at a bird or the like, or the bird knows it's in trouble it flees away a, <laughs> to a place where you can't get them. And And David had experienced this in his life had he not. When, when Saul was going uh, to get him. He was in the mountains of the Judean wilderness, way over there in the south where it was hot and where Saul couldn't find, find him. Well, he's being given the same advice. The mountains are your refuge. The mountains are your refuge. Flee as a bird to your mountain. And their rationale, literally... For behold the wicked bend the bow, it's in the perfect tense in the original, which means they've already bent it. It's already there. They make ready, they already make ready their arrow upon the string. They have already fitted the arrow to the string on the bow. It's there. It's it's present right now. To shoot in darkness at the right at the upright in heart, they're going to do it in the darkness, in the shadows, like an assassin. The danger is imminent. It's already happening. It's treacherous. And the wicked are intent on doing this. Now all of this is a counsel of fear. It takes us to the extreme, does it not? And then the question is raised, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Or more literally, I I, I like it this way if the foundations are destroyed, the righteous, what shall they do? That's the wording of it. You know, this Old Testament text appears to anticipate the dilemma of our age. First, the foundations that are under attack. You know, terrorism is worldwide. Middle East is in turmoil. Radical Islam is flexing its muscle. Russia and China are flexing their muscle. We are a divided nation. People hate each other. We're living in troublesome times, to be sure. The world is not our foundation. Our government is not our foundation. We love our government. We love what it, how it began, what it has stood for throughout the uh, the centuries. But my dear, dear friends, this world is passing away and the lusts thereof. The world is going away. It is not our foundation. Before we go on, we just want to make clear that, you know, Paul wrote about the world, and we're going to get into this in a minute, but Paul wrote about the world. He said, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures, and God gave them over. That's where the world is. That's where the world is. But the question of foundations goes deeper than what we've just mentioned. It has to do with what people believe, or what people do not believe in today's generation. It has to do with the pluralism in our society And the growing consensus that there is no absolute truth. Now, this is not a time to lecture on pluralism, empirical pluralism, uh, cherished pluralism, and philosophical pluralism, but I'll do so anyway. (laughs) (laughs) When I was a a professor in a seminary, I took a book by Don Carson called The Gagging of God. It's a thick book. And all of this is developed there in such clarity to help us understand where we are in the world in terms of the thinking. But I can do it very briefly. Empirical pluralism refers to what is obvious, to what we see before us, that there's great diversity around us in the world. That's empirical. Uh, Cherished pluralism refers to the approval of that diversity. I remember when I lived in Colorado Springs, you saw the, the uh, bumper sticker, celebrate diversity. It's a good thing. And, and there, is one, there are wonderful things about diversity. We love diversity. God created a diverse world. But philosophical pluralism is the idea uh, that all ideas are equally true and valid, no religion, has a right to pronounce itself true. The only truth is what is true f- for you. There was a poll taken half a century ago. That's because I lived half a century ago. <laughs> and I remembered that poll because I had it in a sermon earlier that I remembered about, uh, that I had it. A poll taken half a century ago in America showed that while many believed in God, 64 strongly agreed or somewhat agreed with the assertion that there is no such thing as absolute truth. That was a half a century ago. Today, you can imagine what that poll would look like. Today, we talk about tolerance. Tolerance is not about respect for, for people uh, that differ from you and, and showing respect and, and concern uh, for them. It, tolerance has to do with accepting their views as equally valid as, as, as yours. No statement can be allowed the status of absolute truth, including the statement, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Forgive me for going a little bit in depth. I've been worried today as to whether or not I'm I'm talking too much about the world and not enough about our hope. But I think we have to capture where we are as a country so that as a church and as a people of God, we can respond. And I'll give you a classic example of what's going on. It's the world's reaction to someone who would presume to have absolute truth, and that someone was Alexander Zolchinitsyn. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was an acclaimed Soviet author who had to write secretly and send his, what he's doing out into the Western world uh, without the knowledge of the Soviet Empire, but the Soviets knew. They put him in a gulag in, in Siberia. He suffered in, in a difficult uh, life, and finally he was able to be released from there. Uh, due to uh, influence from the USA and ended up in the USA and was invited to speak the commencement address at Harvard in 1978. A commencement address in Harvard. And the title of his address was A World Split Apart. And he began by by referring to Harvard's motto, Veritas. Now you have to remember, the original... uh, motto for, for uh, Harvard was uh, Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae. It, Harvard was founded in 1636. Plymouth Colony was 1620. They were founded in 1636, and the motto that, that they originally adopted was Truth for Christ and His Church. They were founded in order to send out ministers and to train ministers to go out with the gospel. That was Harvard. Then in the middle of the 19th century, they took off the last part of that motto and left it just as veritas or truth. But Solzhenitsyn picks up on that, and his message was basically a critique of the West's immorality, materialism, godlessness. He pointed out, having lost the concept of a supreme being, society has also lost the means to restrain evil. He said it has scarce defense against what he called the abyss of human decadence. Well, that did not sit well, either with the academics or with the main street media. The New York Times gave it the, the ultimate condemnation, quote, he believes himself to be in possession of the truth and so sees error wherever he looks. Veritas is the motto, and here... That's what the New York Times said. And the New York Times is interesting too because at the turn of the 19th and the 20th century, they used to to have the Sermons of Spurgeon sent over by, what was it back in that day? Uh, Whatever it was, cable or whatever that was, in order to print it in the New York Times. How times have changed. It was Solzhenitsyn who said, if the world has not approached its end, it has reached a major watershed in history, equal in importance to the turn of the Middle Ages, to the Renaissance. It will, it will demand from us a spiritual blaze. We, we shall have to rise to a new height of vision. He was a Christian. The church of our Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, needs to be more than ever before a confessing church of our Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of all this change and, and, and people need the truth. People need the Lord. Now along with this attack on foundations today is the counsel of fear. Flee as a bird to the mountains. It's a normal reaction to the circumstances around us. The persecution of Christians is rising. It's, a, it's at the highest level it has ever been. I guess percentage-wise, in the first three centuries of the modern, of '1 of to 300, it was bad, really bad. But it's equally bad today. It may not be happening in Texas, but the persecution is worldwide. More followers have died in recent years than in any time in history, millions. More are living with their religious freedom, severely restricted. Open door ministry says that 100 million Christians around the world are under persecution of some sort. Who would have known this would happen? Well, there's somebody who would have known. And that's our Lord Jesus. He warned this would happen. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. You will be hated by all on account of my name. We need to get into the reality of life that we live, our life, our death, who we are, who the world is, and what we believe, and how we, how we uh, apply in our lives what we be- believe. You know, it's natural to want to flee, but the Lord spoke to that concern as well. He said, if anyone wishes to follow me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. You know, when Christians read this text today, uh, we tend to read it as a metaphor. Oh, this is my cross that I'm carrying today, and you're talking about your diet. When Jews in in Jesus' days were listening to Jesus say this, they were shocked. They understood it literally. They had watched it literally take place before their eyes. They were abhorred at the thought of carrying a cross because it meant you were walking to your death, and it was a hideous death that you were about to experience. What Jesus was saying, however, was that you have died to this life because you have died with him, and therefore you don't have anything to be afraid of for losing it. He said, whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul? You know, fear is the greatest enemy to faith. Not haters of Christians, not Muslims with Sharia law, not pluralists, but fear. There was a sermon by Dr. Craig Barnes, president of Princeton Theological Seminary. I don't usually read sermons of presidents of Princeton Theological Seminary because of where it's gone. My father traveled from Seattle to Princeton in the 20s and uh, was uh, a student of Princeton Theological Seminary. So I should have fond memories for Princeton, but they've gone the way of, of all flesh to some degree. Isn't he said, isn't it ironic that we who have so much liberty are so afraid? He said, we're afraid of not maintaining our lives, of not fulfilling our dreams, of not getting good jobs. He said, quote, there is no limit to our fears while millions who have no liberty fearlessly continue to gather in house churches in China, refuse to recant their faith in Pakistan and Iran, and choose starvation and slavery over conversion to Islam in the Sudan. How can they take those incredible risks? Because they are not afraid. You can't scare, he said, a dead person. One who has died with Christ. Who has now risen to new life in Christ. You can't scare a dead person whose refuge is in the Lord. When a starving African mother he wrote, looks at her emaciated children and then sees a soldier hold out food only if she recants her faith in Jesus Christ. Her only comfort is that those babies were baptized in the name of Jesus. They are now Jesus' children. She will not be afraid even for them. <clears throat> I, I've been looking closely at the book of Romans lately. And there, it, it provides an interesting example for us. The early church, in Rome, did not fear to to, uh, keep their lives. They were an amazing church. We learn a lot about the church in Rome in the first century from two secular sources. The first secular source is the historian Suetonius, who informs us that the Emperor Claudius in A.D. 49, now remember that date, I'll see how good you are at math. In A.D. 49, expelled from Rome Jews due to disturbances caused by one named Crestus. The only possible explanation for this account is that Jewish Christians were in the Jewish synagogues declaring Jesus to be the Christ, even as we see throughout the book of Acts, everywhere from Stephen on, (laughs) whenever Christ was proclaimed in the synagogues, things happened. It came to such a point in Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, that the emperor had to expel the Jews that were causing that, and that's where Priscilla and Aquila had to leave Rome, you remember, and go go to Corinth. However, the church continued to grow in Rome. Jewish Christians returned, probably after the death of Claudius. Paul arrived 10 years later, after 49, that's in 59-60, and writes from Rome, when he was in Rome, in the prison, he writes from there to the church in Philippi. He writes that the whole Praetorian Guard was aware of his imprisonment for the sake of Christ. That's more than a 1,000 soldiers Guarding the emperor and guarding whatever he wanted to have guarded in his in his kingdom, and that many believers were proclaiming the gospel without fear. Without fear. Second secular writing was the historian Tacitus that tells us in Latin, multitude engines, large numbers of Christians were condemned by Nero. They were burned, they were crucified, they were fed to lions. In A.D. 64, they were blamed for the burning of Rome. All this happened within the space of 15 years to that infant church. Our dear Christian ancestors experienced that. They all came to the Lord probably beginning in the 40s and by 64 multitude engines were killed for the name of Jesus. They believed, as Paul writes in Romans, that having been baptized into Christ, they died with Christ, they've been raised with Christ, they stood justified before God, they were at peace with God, that peace with God was an eternal gift, the glory of which greatly superseded any earthly suffering they could imagine. Thus Paul writes to Rome in, uh, in chapter 8, in the midst of these 15 years, 10 years into, into it, and they received receded in, I, th- I, I think, 57 or 58. For I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us, for the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. You notice his eyes were not on this world. His eyes were above on him, on our God. Then Paul raises a question. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or the sword? These are terms... Of various forms of intense suffering ending in, in the sword which would be execution and he answers this question in this way in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through the one who loved us for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us From the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a profound statement of assurance and trust and hope in our God. The psalmist said, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to the mountain? For all these things are about to happen. If the foundations are destroyed, the righteous, what can they do? The first thing we would say is, our foundation cannot be destroyed. (laughs) Our foundations are not of this world. Second thing we would do is declare what what David goes on to say in verses 4 to 7. His confession of faith. It begins in verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple, or the Lord is in the temple of His holiness. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Yahweh in heaven, His throne. That's it. Yahweh reigns. He's on His throne. He, David would have made a good Calvinist. <laughs> he sits enthroned throne in the holy temple, in the place where all earthly matters are decided. As Habakkuk 2.20 says, the Lord is in his holy temple that all the earth keep silent before him. That's good advice. Secondly, Yahweh reigns, he also sees, verse 4b, his eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. You know, the the mention of his eyelids is intentional. I have to do it all the time because my eyes are giving way. I have to go like this and squint to look to try to see whether, and try to get whatever's in my eyes, out of my eyes, in, in order that I can see clearly. And, and I, I squint to, to see it in order to see it more directly and more concentrated. All are under the piercing and concentrating and pe- penetrating eyes of the Lord. Yahweh reigns from his throne. He sees, he, he also judges. It says he is testing the sons of men, what they are claiming and what they are doing. Verse 5 says, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And then he goes first to the wicked. He says, regarding the wicked, he says, And the one who does violence, his soul hates. Yahweh hates the one who does violence. That's strong language. Do the wicked shoot arrows in the dark? Yahweh shoots more. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. That'll be their end. As in Sodom and Gomorrah, they should be the ones fleeing. The point for the wicked, no matter their present circumstances, they will sooner or later be visited with the judgment of God. That's what this is saying. Then he goes and and speaks regarding the righteous. Righteous. He says, For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, the upright will behold his face. But I want us to look at the order in the original language. The order in the original language. For righteous the Lord, righteous deeds he loves, the upright will behold his face. You're know, righteous, the Lord. That's his attribute. That's who the Lord is. He's righteous. He's in the temple of His holiness. He's he's righteous. Righteous deeds He loves. You know, what I like to see is the difference here between the Lord's reaction to the wicked and the Lord's reaction to the righteous. His reaction to the wicked is violence his soul hates. To the righteous, righteous deeds He loves. For the wicked, the the end of the wicked uh, is, as, as we have stated... Upon the wicked, he will rain snares and <laughs> fire and brimstone. But the upright shall behold his face. You know, the Lord cannot look upon wickedness, it says in of chapter 1. But to have the Lord be able to look at you in your face, and you would be before his face, is the epitome of blessing. You remember the the old Hebrew blessing in Numbers uh, chapter uh, 7 or 9. 7, I think. What is it, Mark? Just chapter, anyway. 7 or 9 goes, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Peace. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? My dear friends, the Apostle Paul said no other foundation can be laid than the foundation that's already been laid, which is Christ Jesus. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And at the end of a particular parable, he said, Whoever hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, beat upon that house, and it fell not because it was founded upon the rock. The Lord is our refuge and strength. Let us bow. In prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. We look at the world around us and we realize that this world is not our home and we're just passing through, that we are strangers and pilgrims in this land. Father, we, we desire more than ever before to live as children of our God, as children of our Redeemer. We pray that your Spirit will so lead us and empower us to live in a way that would be entirely pleasing in your sight in the midst of a world that needs to hear the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, we would ask this